Hello, church family. Pastor Mike here. Hope you enjoyed your time last week as we visited with one of our missionaries and saw how God is working throughout the rest of the world through the Alliance. Um, this week we're going to return back to Acts, and so if you've got a Bible nearby, open with me to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be in uh, verse 32 is where we're going to start from. It's been a little over a month since we last saw the Apostle Peter in the story of Acts, and we'll find today that he's brought back into the narrative. And the passage that we're going to read today really serves as a precursor to Acts chapter 10. Uh, in Acts 10, we find Peter in a town called Caesarea, uh, but his last known whereabouts were, was in Jerusalem, uh, which is about 60 miles south of Caesarea. And so the story here that we're going to read today really is there. We believe that Luke included it just to explain why Peter is so far north in that specific region and what led him uh, there. And uh, it's really to show us Peter's progression up to Caesarea. Uh, but we'll find that even in the in-between, Jesus is still actively at work uh, in expanding his church. And so let's read it together. We'll be in Acts chapter 9, verses 32. We'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 43. It says this. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in, at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas... Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood behind him, weeping, or beside him, weeping, and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, Arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one uh, Simon, a tanner. Would you pray with me before we begin our time looking at God's word? Father, as we now take a moment to look at your word, would you open our ears to hear your spirit's voice? I pray that we would lean into your spirit in this moment as we try to make sense of this broken and messed up world. Lord, your word tells us that it's sin that has broken the world. It's our rebellion against you that has caused it to break. And so now, Lord, would you come back and um, and and allow us to submit into your kind, loving arms. As we study, would you make your will and your ways known to us, and would we obediently follow you? In your Son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a friend named Adam, and 
if you've lived in the Erie community for the last five years or so, you, you might actually be familiar with his story. About five years ago, in November of 2015, Adam was playing in a game of football. And on one particular play, he was uh, tackled, and he immediately felt extreme pain. So much so that when he got up, he said it was, it was so painful that he felt paralyzed as he felt this pain on his side. Uh, they called an ambulance, and they sent him to the ER, and uh, the, the doctors sent him in for scans immediately, and they came back with some alarming news for him. After the scan, they had found a tumor the size of a softball attached to Adam's kidney uh, that he had no idea was there. Well, they tested it right away, and they found out that it was 95% cancerous. So they took action right away to remove the tumor, and they informed him that they were able to get all of it. But about a month later, in January of 2016, they brought Adam in for another scan. And after the scan, the doctor shared the results with Adam and his wife. And Adam says that the doctors looked right at him and said, well, the unfortunate has happened because the cancer has spread into your stomach and up into your lymph nodes and all across your lungs. The doctor explained that Adam had stage 4 kidney cancer. And because it was moving so aggressively, there was nothing that they could do to treat it or even to slow it down. And then the doctor shared the words that nobody ever wants to hear. He told Adam that he only had months to live. At this point, God turned to God. And he reached out to his church and other churches. He really, he just reached out to as many people that would listen to him to, to pray on his behalf. And as his story became known, thousands of people in Erie were lifting him up in prayer and uh, churches were lifting him up in prayer. I remember FAC uh, praying for him from the platform. But his condition continued to worsen and his health continued to deteriorate. He lost 70 pounds in a matter of a few months. He was down to skin and bones. Although he was only in his mid-30s, he had to walk with a cane. He was so weak. He was so weak he couldn't even carry his own kids anymore. And every scan that came through uh, the, the the months after uh, were even worse. The, the cancer continued to spread. It got to the point where the doctors were telling Adam that he needed to plan his own funeral because it was coming down to the end. They said, go and enjoy these last days with your children because there's not much more time. But then, on April 15th of 2016, Adam went in for another scan and the doctor was dumbfounded. Because after staring at the results for an hour and asking other radiologists to come and take a look at it, the doctor couldn't find 80% of the cancer that was there from the prior month's scan. And even the cancer that was still present had shrunk. No treatment, no medication, just a lot of prayer. It was still quite a long journey for Adam but a year later, on April of 2017, he was declared cancer-free and has still been cancer-free for the last three years. In, in a world of biological logic, how do you explain 
explain that? How do you make sense of this? There's so many questions, but what I can observe with my own eyes is that he was deathly ill, and now he's not. Our understanding of cancer from a biological standpoint is that cancer just doesn't reverse course like that without any intervention, especially when it's that aggressive. I believe that Adam's story is a miracle. That miracles still do happen. I believe that there was supernatural intervention in Adam's body. The passage that we read just moments ago, and we'll study for a few minutes here, will help us make sense and help us understand how such miraculous events uh, still happen. In in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, uh, which is our denomination, uh, we have something that's called the fourfold gospel. The fourfold gospel was developed by A.B. Simpson. Simpson's the founder of the alliance. And this uh, fourfold gospel states that, uh, that Jesus is our savior and that Jesus is our sanctifier and that Jesus is our healer and Jesus is our coming king. The third concept that Jesus is our healer, though, is, is one that many people tend to shy away from. It's almost as if they're uncomfortable with it and I believe that they're uncomfortable with it because they might not just understand what's happening. We have a lack of understanding of what's going on. And so I'd like to take time today to really answer a few questions this morning. Mainly, how does healing happen? And why does it happen? And why, in some instances, does it not happen? Healing was a huge part of Jesus' ministry when he walked the earth. A, a great portion of his ministry was dedicated to healing the sick. Everything from the blind to the deaf to the paralyzed and even the dead. The book of Acts, which we've been walking through this entire year, it really is just a continuation of Jesus' physical ministry through the apostles. And so if physical healing was a major part of Jesus' ministry when he was here in the flesh, then of course it's going to be a huge part of his ministry through the Spirit, which is something that we should expect. Because back in Luke, this is what we read about Jesus, right? As he was instructing his apostles and sending them out. This is what he says in Luke chapter 9, verses 1, and then later on in 6. And he, being Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And then later on in verse 6, and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So when we come to Acts 9, it should come as no surprise because Peter was given the gift of healing by Jesus himself. And we see that uh, this continuation of Jesus' healing ministry through Peter. In verse 32, we find Peter traveling among the saints, or or basically he's traveling among uh, the believers that lived in that region, in in Lydda, which is about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Essentially, he's on what we would call a visitation tour, right? He's probably teaching and encouraging and counseling and correcting uh, the believers in the region. Keep in mind, these are young believers and these are young churches within the last couple of years. And so Peter is serving a pastoral role of sorts. He wants to make sure that they're taken care of. And while he's in the town of Lydda, 
he comes upon a man named Aeneas who had been paralyzed for eight years. It's a very quick story. Peter goes in and tells him, rise and make your bed. It's, it's so casual. It's like on a, on a normal day when you walk into your kid's room and say, all right, it's time to get up. Make your bed before you come out of the room. It's like Peter has no regard for the severity of the situation, for what Aeneas has been through in the last eight years. But amazingly, the paralytic gets up, right? The next time your teenager tells you that they're too tired to get up, just tell them, hey, if Aeneas, who was paralyzed for the last eight years, can get up and make his own bed, you'll do just fine. As we continue on, immediately after this account, Luke goes on to describe this strong believer named Tabitha in the town of Joppa, which is about 10 miles further north from where Peter was. In verse 37, we see this account of this wonderful woman who is full of good works and was charitable, but now, uh, sadly, she lays lifeless in the, in the upper room, an upper room as she is prepared for burial. Now, other believers had heard that Peter was in the next town over, and so they sent for him and asked him to come immediately. And um, who, who knows what they expected, but uh, I can't imagine that they, um, that they weren't surprised to see what happens. Once again, we have a very short and simple account. Peter walks into the room. He prays. And then he says, in a matter of minutes probably, all right, Tabitha, it's time to get up. Rise, it's time to get up. And she gets up. Now, once again, in a logical world where so many of us want concrete answers, how do you make sense of this? How does this happen? Where does this healing power come from? And the answer is in plain sight in verse 34. Right? If we revisit the account with Aeneas, right before Peter tells Aeneas to rise and make his bed, Peter tells him, Jesus Christ heals you. Even with Tabitha, when Peter approaches Tabitha's lifeless body, he doesn't muster up something from within. It's not like he has the magic words to say or the power from within, but he prays. He, he goes to God. He turns to Jesus for the power. So from Scripture, in the most basic sense, the power to heal always comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Even today, Jesus is still the healer. Whether by supernatural or even natural means, restorative power comes from Jesus. And, and it's, an important, it's important to make the distinction that not only does such power come from Jesus, but it only comes from Jesus. It, it, it does not come from anything else. The power to heal does not come from how much faith you have. Yes, there is a component of faith, but our faith is merely a response to Jesus. It's just a trust in Jesus' power. Because you see, it's not about the strength of my faith, but always about the strength of the object that I put my faith in. Perhaps if I were to jump off a bridge with a tiny string anchoring my ankle to the bridge, I could have all the faith in the world. 
I could have the most impressive faith in that tiny bit of string, and it won't make a difference because that string is not powerful enough to save me. If anyone has ever told you that you or a loved one haven't been healed because you do not have enough faith, they are preaching lies to you because the power source is not tapped from the amount of your faith. The power comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. How does healing happen? Because of Jesus. That's the short Sunday school explanation, but I'd like to dig a little bit deeper and, and, and really just lay the, the theological groundwork, the theological framework of this. And it starts back in paradise. If you go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, you have Adam and Eve who are living in a perfect communal relationship with God. They are walking with God. And their union with God brought benefits. And one of those benefits was that they experienced a life free from pain, free from sickness, free from suffering, and free from death. But when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they were banished from his presence. And those benefits of life, free from death, were stripped from them as well. As sin entered the world, sickness entered the world, pain entered the world, death entered the world. You want to know why the world is as broken as it is today? Why we experience all those things? Because sin separated us from God, entered the world. Not only was humankind Deprived of life and health spiritually, they are also deprived of life and health physically because there's a connection between the physical and the spiritual. We weren't only separated from God spiritually, we were separated from Him physically, and now we are experiencing the consequences of sin. Now, you aren't necessarily sick or in pain because of a specific sin, but you are experiencing that because sin is present or prevalent in the world. We live in a broken system. We are, a, we are broken when removed from God's presence and, and sickness and pain and death uh, is a byproduct of such brokenness. Those things are, are one of the many ways that brokenness manifests itself in this world. We were created to be with God, to live with Him eternally, but when you remove God from the picture, when Adam and Eve willingly walked away from His perfect plans, the, the, the results are disastrous. This virus, this coronavirus that we're all kind of dealing with and wondering about and researching and thinking about and perhaps worrying that I'm going to get it, this virus that rips through the bodies of millions of individuals is a byproduct of being expelled from the garden. And it's a byproduct of being expelled from God's presence. Of being, It's one of the consequences of being separated from the God of life. Left in our broken nature, we will decay. 
That's the natural order of the world right now. Unless someone intervenes. And that's the wonderful news of the gospel. Because while God had to banish us because of our sin, he's a perfect judge. He cannot be around sin. So he had to remove himself uh, from us. While he had to enact judgment because he's perfect, he refuses to leave us in a state of decay. He had a plan all along that would bring us back into the fold. His ultimate plan is to restore us, is to rescue us from our state of mortality. And that plays out through Jesus Christ, through his death and through his resurrection. Wayne Grudem, he's a modern-day theologian, and he states that in the atonement, Christ has purchased for us not only complete freedom from sin, but also complete freedom from physical weakness and infirmity in his work of redemption. You see, the logic works like this. If, if mortality of man is a byproduct of sin, and Jesus died for our sin and all the effects that go with it, then Jesus also died for our mortality. Christ deals with man's physical limitations, with man's physical sickness by dealing with man's sin. If Jesus came to redeem sin, redeem our brokenness, then we know that he not only came to redeem us spiritually, but he also came to redeem us physically. And we have scripture that shows us the relationship between spiritual redemption and physical redemption, how it's all connected. If you go back to Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5. It's a famous passage in this regard, and it'll be familiar to you because I read it all the time. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. This is what the prophet says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we uh, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. In this prophecy, Isaiah speaks of a Messiah, a coming Savior, who would not only take up our transgressions and our iniquities, but would also bear our pain and bear our suffering because the Messiah, the Savior, is punished, stricken, afflicted, pierced, and crushed. We are healed. One could argue that this passage is only speaking about spiritual healing. However, the language used here is very physical in nature. And that argument is struck down a bit when considering the passage in the New Testament that fulfills this prophecy. 
If you were to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, you would come across this story of Jesus pre- preaching and doing ministry, and he's, he's driving out demons, and he's healing sick people. And this is what Matthew writes about this instance, right? Uh, Matthew 8, 16 through 17. That evening they brought to him, meaning Jesus, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a world and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. In this passage, we see that Christ's healing ministry is a direct fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 53. Christ's healing ministry is ultimately grounded in his work on the cross. Therefore, healing is included in one of the many benefits purchased by Christ on the cross. It's through God's suffering, through Christ's suffering, that God would restore all the benefits lost through sin and therefore include the elimination of physical mortality and ailment. Overall, Matthew refers to Isaiah's prophecy in order to show that Jesus' ministry of healing satisfies his mission to restore a broken humanity to wholeness. Now, this does not necessarily guarantee that the believer will be healed every time in this life. But we do have to understand that healing is possible. That healing is available through the power of Christ in this life. As Jesus demonstrates his authority over death itself, we see that he carries the power to restore. That's how healing is possible. But as equally important, we must ask the question, why? Why does healing occur? What is Jesus' motivation in distributing his power to heal in this life? And we can look to our text again in Acts chapter 9. The answer can be found in that story in verses 35 and 42. You see, at face value, the, the people in these, these cities have just seen Peter healing two people. But you'll notice that in those verses, there is no praise for Peter. No, in both instances, they turn to the Lord. They believe in the Lord. They praise the Lord. The glory of this specific situation doesn't belong to Peter. The glory belongs to the Lord. Even in modern ministry, we have to be willing as we serve to, to do, to carry out the wonderful good works that God has prepared us to do and then take all of the glory that is directed at us, all of the praise that is directed to us, and it is our responsibility as servants in the gospel to take all that glory and to take all our praise and redirect it and to reflect it back to Christ because the glory does not belong to me. The glory belongs to To Jesus. Why does this healing take place in Acts 9? So that Jesus would receive glory. Healing. 
the purpose of healing is always to glorify Jesus. With this in mind, let this biblical truth inform your prayers. Let this influence you when you pray for healing. When you pray for healing, it should sound something like this. This is a prayer that comes directly from the CMA's website. The proper response, the proper prayer is, is Father, whatever brings you glory, Lord, I believe that you can heal. I believe that healing is available to me through the power of Jesus. And and with the absence of any firm word to the contrary, I believe that you will heal. But the only reason I want to be healed is because I want to bring you glory. And if something else were to bring you more glory, that's okay with me. Because it's not about me. It's all about your son, Jesus. This should help us understand why healing takes place, but it should also help us understand why healing doesn't take place. Perhaps you sit there and say, well, my, my situation isn't like Tabitha. It's not like Aeneas or your friend Adam. I've been calling to God for years. And he hasn't healed me. Why on earth hasn't he healed me? Scripture has many answers for this. I want you to know that there are great riches to be found in our weakness. Weakness is the way of the Christian life. But a simple answer in light of what we've already discussed is this. If Jesus' motivation and healing is to bring himself the most glory, then his motivation in not healing is also to bring himself the most glory. And he brings himself glory by using such weakness to draw us to him to draw us closer to him so that we may rest in his power and depend on him. Sometimes he allows such calamity to bring us to the low places so that the only one we will grasp onto is himself. That will bring him glory. Paul speaks to this in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul is talking about how, you know, having received revelations from God could have made him prideful. Maybe it did make him prideful. And this is what he writes to that end in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, So to keep me from being conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he, the Lord, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You may be extremely frustrated that God has not healed you in the way that you wished. But let me remind you that ultimately and eventually, death will get the best of you. Even the healthiest person in the world will face a day when God won't heal. Every single one of us will experience physical death. But here's the beauty of our mortality. In in that moment, at your point of death, when Jesus doesn't heal you, he uses death. The most terrible fate of, of mankind, the final enemy, he uses death as a, the gateway to resurrection, is the gateway to perfect life without any physical restrictions. We already established in Acts 9 that these healings came about because of Jesus' sacrifice. They're connected to his death. But if you look closely, you'll come to find that they're also connected to his resurrection. In both instances, Peter tells Aeneas and he tells Tabitha to rise. He tells tells Aeneas to rise. He tells Tabitha to arise. In the original language, it's actually the same verb. It's the same word, to arise. And this verb is frequently associated with the resurrection of Jesus. These healings point to a risen Christ. And the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, points to the day that he's going to come back and we will be resurrected. And those who are in Christ will be resurrected to life. And those who are not in Christ will be resurrected to judgment. And so if the healings in Acts 9 point to Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus' resurrection points to our resurrection when he returns then these healings are merely a foretaste of what's to come. You know, an appetizer is designed to whet the appetite. It's to make us eager and hungry for the main course, to get us excited about what's coming next. When we read about these healings in Acts chapter 9 and and experience healing in our modern context, it's designed to whet the appetite, to get us excited for what's to come. It's designed to point us to the day that Jesus comes back. This is what we're doing when we pray for healing. We're asking, God, would would you just give me a small glimpse, a small taste of what it's going to be like on that day, what kingdom come will look like. And then when we get the taste and, and we desire the main course all the more, we long and we groan for the day that our bodies will be restored. That's our hope in Christ. 
And that's a hope worth living for. This past Monday, I was scrolling the Facebook page of Erie News Now. To be honest, I was actually checking to see if there had been any further riots from the evening before. I was looking for good news, hoping uh, that the worst hadn't happened. And as I scrolled down their page, I came across the weather update. In the description of the post, this is what the weatherman wrote. The weatherman wrote, "I, I think most people will at least like the forecast for today. As I read that, I got the feel that it was, that it was a direct response to just all the junk that's happening in the world right now. That, that despite everything going on, despite the pain of a fallen world, at least it's gonna be sunny. At least it's gonna be sunny with a high of 75 today. We are currently experiencing the brokenness of a fallen world that many generations perhaps haven't. And you mean to tell me that my hope is in the weather forecast? That despite all that's going on, at least I'll like the weather today. What a waste. What an empty hope if this is all the world has to offer if all I have to look forward to is that it's going to be nice out today. As we come face to face with the problem of sickness and death, we have the solution in Jesus Christ. We know a lot of sick people and a lot of broken people, and and I want you to know that I pray for you and I mourn with you, but let me encourage you not to let your primary hope be in healing for today, but healing in eternity. Don't fill up on the appetizer. Get ready for the main course. I can't guarantee that you will be healed today, but on the authority of God's word and on the authority of God's promises, you will be healed when Jesus returns if you have turned to him. If you are healed in this life, that's good but it only fixes something temporarily. It only patches something up for a fleeting moment. But the gospel is about the finished, permanent work of Jesus. Jesus doesn't merely want to meet your temporary physical needs. He wants to meet your ultimate, eternal needs. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your promises. And we thank you that you come through on your promises. I would pray, Father, that if there is somebody watching this right now and participating in our services who are sick or unhealthy or even dying, Father, would you heal them? We know, Father, that it's in your will to ultimately heal when all things are said and done, when Jesus returns. But Father, in this moment, in this life, would you give us a taste? Would you give us a glimpse of what that looks like? And if you don't, Father, would you give us the perseverance and the endurance required to cast our anxieties and our cares 
and our issues and our health to you and your son, Jesus? Would we rest in your power and will we understand the power that's available to us in weakness? And in your holy name I pray, amen.